When it comes to water, Australia is a land of extremes. Over the past decade, the country has seen some of the worst droughts and floods in its recorded history. In the early 2000s, the country was wondering if it might run out of fresh water because of severe drought. Then, just last year, flooding in the northeastern state of Queensland killed at least 35 people and caused more than a billion dollars in damage. These kinds of unpredictable conditions have forced Australians to adapt in a variety of ways. In 2010, the government put aside $12.9 billion over the current decade to help secure its water supplies. Nearly half of that money is going toward rural and agricultural projects, Michael Ree reports from Queensland's capital, Brisbane. Laurie Black is going to show me one of his sorghum plants up close. He's been driving me through stretches of his family's 4,000-acre farm for about 20 minutes, and we're finally feeling the crunch of dead leaves oh, yep. under our feet. And you see, that's just a bit weathered, although when you take it out of the husk, it's, it's still quite bright grain. I see. When did you harvest this last? In February. Sorghum is a cereal crop, a lot like wheat or barley. Here in Australia, it's mostly grown as cattle feed, but in other parts of the world, such as Asia and Africa, it's a staple food. By all accounts, it's a hardy plant, which is good in an environment like this, where it can get pretty dry. It's also good for someone like Black, who's a dryland farmer. Our sole source of moisture comes from the clouds. The biggest challenge for a dryland farmer like Black is figuring out how to make the most out of every drop of rainfall. One of the ways he does that is through something called zero-till farming. That basically means disturbing the soil as little as possible to preserve its moisture. It involves expensive machinery like long-armed planters that inject seeds directly into the soil, or tractors armed with inch-accurate GPS to help maximize the farmland. When Black began experimenting with the techniques back in the 90s, he was pretty quickly convinced the investment would be worth it. We'd been dabbling in minimum tillage, and we could see the advantages. We were growing better crops. Black's family ended up spending a million dollars on new equipment to go zero-till. And just in time, too. Around this same period, during the early 2000s, Australia was hit by one of the worst droughts in its recorded history. But in spite of these tough conditions, the Black family's farm did relatively well. A joke even started around town that the Blacks were lucky when it came to rain. We have one very big and successful farmer and businessman that bought three farms adjacent to our property and he told me that one of his friends said, oh, you'll be right now, you've got a farm next to Black's because it always rains at Black's place. That's so funny. Well... It's funny if it wasn't so serious because farmers need to grow as much crops as they can and there are still some farmers trying to do it the old way and if they could just step out of their little circle and, and see the advantage, they'd be better off. Yeah. These glass houses were all ruined in the floods. I'm at the University of Queensland now, walking through a greenhouse with crop expert Graham Hammer and one of his researchers, Vijaya Singh. Singh has been studying the root systems of sorghum for about six years. 
She leads us to a table full of young green plants. They all are different varieties and where they come from. Just like Lori Black, Singh also has been looking at the issue of making sorghum more efficient with water. Except she's doing it at a genetic level. Now, large agrochemical firms have been experimenting with plant genetics for a long time. What's unique about Singh's research is that she's looking at plants' roots to see if she can make them more efficient. We know that root system is very important organ of any plant, and if we understand the shape of the root system, we can determine how it's going to capture water. As the drought tightens its grip, there are a few simple ways we can each target 140 litres a day like spending less than four minutes in the shower, turning off the tap when brushing. Starting around the year 2000, a severe drought hit much of Australia. By 2007, when this public service announcement aired in Brisbane, fresh water supplies here had reached a record low. Other major cities like Melbourne and Sydney were facing similar shortages. Some experts said Brisbane's water could run out within a year. Without a crystal ball to say for sure when it might rain again, or how much, the city's leaders began construction on a $7 billion high-tech water system. Down here you can see the microfiltration units. This is a cross-section of one of them. Michael Fechner is taking me on a tour of one of the region's advanced water treatment facilities. Fechner is with SEQ Water, which is the area's main water supplier. The firm runs a number of dams, catchments, and treatment centers like this one all around southeast Queensland. At this wastewater recycling facility, sewage can be converted into pure drinking water using a process known as reverse osmosis. Fechner shows me a model of one of the filters they use here. It looks like a giant tube made of solid beige plastic. It feels like packing tape. It, it is. It's acetate that's just wrapped round and around. It's solid, but under high pressure, you can push water through it. Meanwhile, Fechner says nasty bits like pesticides, hormones, and organic materials are left behind. He actually says the water that comes out of this process is so pure you can't drink it straight. Minerals like calcium have to be added to it first to keep the water from leaching those same minerals from your body. Now you might be grossed out at the prospect of drinking what used to be sewage. So were some people here. But no one in the region has had to drink recycled water just yet. That's because more than enough rain eventually came. Australia's worst flooding disaster. That's how the situation in Queensland is being described. Three quarters of the state is now a disaster zone. And after 19 days, the human toll has risen dramatically. Ten people have been killed in the last 30 This is just water, the stuff we take for granted. And it's got such a big force about it. That always stayed with me right from the beginning, how powerful this thing is. When Abel Imaraj was a boy, his father worked as an engineer on hydroelectric dams in India. They would live at these sites, and gradually, Imaraj developed a fascination with water. The power of water is the one thing that did strike me when I was really, really young. You go to a site, and then one day, the foundations are there, there's lots of people working on the dam site and everything, and then a few hours later they say there's a flood coming, and then everything is evacuated. And then you go back a couple of days later and nothing's there. And it's back to square one. Imaraj is now a planning manager at the Queensland Water Commission in Brisbane. And every day he has to juggle the uncertainty of tomorrow's rainfall with the needs of the region's two and a half million people. The floods that came in early 2011 are a good example of how fickle the weather can be here. 
and with the population continuing to grow, the stakes are only getting higher. The fact that water is boom or bust, you might go from droughts to floods, and particularly in Australia, that is what I think makes it particularly complex. But there are a couple signs they're doing things right. The first is that the state-of-the-art water system works. Ironically, it wasn't the drought that triggered the need, but last year's floods. They ended up contaminating some of the region's drinking water, so the desalination plants were switched on to increase supplies. The other promising aspect is the people. During the drought, residents in Brisbane were able to cut the amount of water they used every day by more than half. Just by using old dishwater on their gardens, taking shorter showers, and changing a few other behaviors, average daily use dropped from about 80 gallons a day to 36. And even though the drought has been over now for several years, that number has only crept up slightly. I'm not surprised at all that as a whole community we responded straight away to the drought in ways that now you sort of look back and you say it wasn't that phenomenal. But really that's what happens in Australia across the board. It's a very resilient uh, community. I've been in small regional communities where you have to go and talk to them about you have 10 days of water supply left and then we're going to have to start trucking in. He said, well, let's go for those nine days and then we'll decide on the 10th day if we need to. <laughs> so it's not surprising. Over the last decade, it's clear that Australians have been able to adapt pretty well to the dry years and the wet ones. If anything, the challenges have motivated more than a few people to look at ways of anticipating even tougher years in the future. Whatever the clouds bring, Australia will be waiting. For America Abroad, I'm Michael Ree in Brisbane.